Good morning. We are um, pretty excited to have the Traftons here with us leading worship for the first Sunday. So, After that song, I'm hoping y'all won't be so excited you start asking us to shorten our sermons. Um, but we'll see. Uh, we are still continuing the Psalms. We're in the Psalm of Ascents, uh, 15 Psalms there. So if you'll turn to Psalm 132, that's where we are this morning. There's, these Psalms of Ascents, there are 15 songs that were written for the people of God to sing as they would leave all their cities in Israel and head up, ascend, literally ascend to Jerusalem on, on an annual, for some of their annual feasts that they had. So if, if you've ever been on, um, some of our uh, youth just went on a, uh, you know, their youth trip, and you usually take a big caravan on a youth trip, and uh, it's, it's kind of like all of them breaking into song as they're just heading up into the mountains to, to arrive at their camp. Of course, these songs weren't uh, necessarily just for fun to pass the time. These songs were theological and formational. They were meant to prepare their hearts to come into the presence of God in his temple. And this song, Psalm 132, is, is double the length of any other psalm in, in the 15 psalms, songs of ascent. And therefore, it's pretty significant. So let's read here Psalm 132, the song that they sang many years ago. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor... All the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard it, heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship. At his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy, and let the, for the sake of your servant David. Do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath, from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and My testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation. And her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout For David, I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on his crown will shine. It's the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray once more together. Our gracious God, who is enthroned in heaven. As a king of the universe, we pray you would be king and sovereign over our hearts today as we are coming to your word, needing to receive it by faith and for your Holy Spirit to transform us 
enlightening our eyes, helping us see the, the glory of the gospel, all your benefits and blessings you give us in your son Jesus. So please do that. Help us know what it's like to live in your presence from this text. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I met my wife, Miriam, on a blind date in October of 2006. And I was living in St. Louis, and she was living in Memphis, where both of our parents live. And I picked her up. We went on a long run in the park, and then we went to breakfast at one of my favorite restaurants, Cracker Barrel. And um, I later found out that was not her favorite restaurant, but she didn't tell me that day. Uh, then I dropped her back off. And the day went pretty well, so in about a month or so, I came back into Memphis and took her out again. And then um, I thought that went as well. Um, something must be going right. So about a month later, I asked her to go out again, and she granted me another date. And um, that went good. And so things progressed pretty quickly. And so about December, we started talking about marriage. And um, and then we were engaged in February. And because I was finishing up seminary about four and a half hours apart, we didn't get to really be in each other's physical presence very often until we got married. Uh, this was before FaceTime was out, so we talked on the phone a good bit. But it's just not the same, the same experience as, as when you're in the actual presence of another person. And then we lived several long other months, um, just with a sense of hopeful longing and anticipation the next time we could be together. And we'd finally be married, united, and, and actually get to live together in each other's presence. And most of you have felt times like this, where you, know, you, you, you have someone that you love, whether it's a spouse or a really good friend, you feel a sense of restlessness when you're away from them for too long. There's a natural longing and anticipation to be back in their presence. And this is somewhat like the story of the Bible, the whole Bible, right? We're created to live in this presence of God, our creator. Picture it as he walked in their presence in the garden with Adam and Eve. And, and, and with their rebellion came not just the guilt of their sin, but it came separation. They were physically kicked out of the garden, signifying a separation from his presence. And ever since then, as Augustine said, we're born, all of us are born with a sense of restlessness until our hearts rest back in the presence of God. Well, in the story, as you know, God makes a way to restore this relationship. He delivered his people from Egypt and he, he, he um, built a place to meet with them, to come into his presence. And, and coming out of in the desert, they built this tent called the tabernacle. And they would meet with God there. He would... He would dwell among his people in the center of their community in this, in this glorious tent. Um, and then he had them build an ark, which he placed, they placed in the back of this tabernacle, tabernacle called the Holy of Holies. It was thought of as the footstool of the presence of God, where he would rest his feet on earth. It was the visible sign of God's invisible presence among them. And years later, God gave them a land, and Solomon eventually built them a permanent temple replace the mobile tent. And here in Psalm 132, we find God's people traveling from all their towns in order to go up to this temple and worship God. This was no obligatory, duty-filled, I have to go to church today type of going up. No, they were like ones who have been separated from a best friend or a lover. 
There was longing and they were singing about this longing to be in his presence again. It reminds us all of us this morning. Our hearts really are restless until they fully rest in God. And some of, some of us are experiencing a sweet, a sweetness in our presence, in the presence of God, in our relationship with God. And some of us are not so much feeling this sense of, of restfulness in the presence of God, this joyful singing. My hope is today that we'll come away with a greater taste for an anticipation and longing to be in the presence of God. That's my hope here. And we're going to look at three things in order to do this. One is the desire for God's presence. Two is the promise of God's presence. And then lastly, the fulfillment of God's promise. So let's look first at the desire for God's presence. You, know, you can only almost picture these thousands of people going up to Jerusalem singing this song. It, it, they, they begin the song asking for God to remember David's vow in verses 3 through 5. See, David, see, he was in Jerusalem at one point. He's, he was chilling in this nice, big, huge house made of cedar. And he's looking out. You can almost picture him looking out. And at that point, there's just a, there's just a tent where the ark of God was dwelling. And his desire was to build God a glorious and permanent place for him to dwell among his people. He says, I will give no sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a resting place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. He wanted to build this temple. And all the people, well, excuse me, the refusal to sleep is like a metaphor. It's like his heart is restless because of this desire for God to rest among his people is so real with him. He has this longing for God to be accessible and his presence to be near. And then all the people join with him in this desire, saying, this is not, this is, we're reflecting the same heart that David has. In verse 7, look in verse 7. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. They want to meet God there as well. And then verse 8, they ask God to meet him there. Arise, O Lord, and you go to your resting place in the ark of your might. So it's like, hey, we all, let's all join there in the temple. So we can all be in your presence. So it's a reminder, we're created with this desire for God to be accessible and near. But you know, it's not, it's not obvious and, and just a given that we're going to have this desire, right? Our culture right now is struggling with any kind of desire for the presence of God to be near. There's an obvious desire actually to remove the presence of God from us. To separate God from the state, prayer from the schools, uh, faith from science, or God's truth from our morality. There's a desire for increased autonomy. And and it shouldn't be surprising that the more our culture does this, the more we have an increased sense of restlessness. In fact, statistics even say this, this, some of this restlessness is physical. As one in five Americans have a sleeping disorder, most statistics say and with the increased desire to be separated from God, there's an increased sense of separation from one another. All the statistics say that we are increasingly becoming lonely. People have more so-called friends than ever, but studies show that half of Americans lack companionship. And nobody saying that nobody really knows them. Nobody really has drawn near. I don't really feel in the presence of anyone. 
this restlessness doesn't just apply to our culture. I think it's also within the church. And so let me give you a few reasons that even us here, we might feel a sense of um, a lack of desire to be in God's presence. Number one. Number one, you don't believe. You really aren't in relationship with God. You, you know, if you're, if you're here this morning and you are not a believer, if you're not a Christian, we're so glad that you have come this morning. And um, we, we want this, this church to be a place where you feel like you can have a sense where you can belong here before you believe. But I don't want us to pass over the obvious truth that some of us have never felt this desire for the presence of God because you've never have a changed heart. I grew up in church. I went to church for a long time trying to do things to please God, but I never felt a sense of his presence. And it's not an uncommon story to come to church, but never sense his presence. Um, If this is you, I hope that you will keep continue coming, but push into how you can truly start this relationship with God and come into his presence. Another reason some of us lack the desire to be in God's presence, though, is distraction. So um, if you've ever been to a meal, if you've ever gone to a meal with me, uh, lunch or dinner or breakfast or something like that, you realize that I've, I've kind of got a problem. And it's this, um, so if, you, if you've been to lunch with me, you notice that I come into a restaurant and I immediately start assessing where the TVs are in the room. Because I cannot sit, sit in the presence of somebody with a TV anywhere in my peripheral vision. I mean, I could be sitting down with Donald Trump and he could be asking how I apply the gospel to border security, you know, or whatever. <laughs> and the home shopping network could be up in the corner. And I could be like, I just, I get distracted so easily. It's so annoying. So I have to sit. Um, what's that restaurant? Miller's Ale House. It's like the worst. I mean, I literally asked the, um, <laughs> the waitress, like, do you have a booth that's just sitting? You know, I need a wall right here. Uh, there's this one booth. Um, Matthew 13, 22 is a sobering reminder that we can receive, you can receive God's word through the preaching of the word or through the reading of the word in your quiet times. And it can just become utterly unfruitful. Why? Because as the NLT version says, it gets crowded out by the worries of this world and the lure of wealth. It just gets crowded out. God's word is meant to be fruitful in our lives. And when we engage it, it's meant to be Real and as sweet as Psalm 19 says, sweet as honey is our mouth in our mouth. Our time in God's word is meant to be, as Psalm 90 says, it's meant to satisfy us in the morning with, with, with God's unfailing love. And yet, how easily do we get distracted? You know, I, I'll give you one other example like that. You know, my, um, I love getting home from work because, in general, three out of four of my children or so. Um, will come running to the door and they just really seem delighted that my, I'm, I'm home. Delighted to be in my presence. But every now and then Miriam will grant them the, the, um, the treat, a treat or privilege of, of watching TV. And every now and then uh, during the middle of the day, and every now and then it'll overlap when I get home. And so sure enough, I open the door and I'm like, I'm home. It's like, you know, whatever. I don't know what a cricket sounds like. Anyway. 
Um, you know, it's just a screen. Can, you know, something on TV, and again, it can be anything. So easily distracts from a desire to be in my presence. The heart of drawing near to God is to find greater desire and pleasure in being in God's presence as other things, as in other things. And as Stephen mentioned earlier, the heart of idolatry, it is a finding a greater desire and pleasure to be in the presence of something else other than God. We are all seeking the presence of someone or something else to some degree in our lives. The question is, who or what is it? In other words, who or what is grabbing your attention right when you wake up in the morning? Think about it. Who or what is grabbing your attention? Who or what is distracting you from really desiring to be in the presence of God in the midst of the day? Whether whether you're at work or raising children or, or working out or mowing the grass. Is there a current worry in your life or a pursuit of some kind of personal gain an allure of wealth or whatever that is occupying your thought life and therefore crowding out this desire for more of God's presence in your life. The practice of the presence of God is it is not a matter of neglecting the responsibilities that God has given us, whether making breakfast or going to work or mowing the grass or raising children. It is more the practice of the presence of God is a matter of inviting God into all of those aspects of of your life. Brother Lawrence wrote a book back in the 1600s called The Practice of the Presence of God. In it, he says, one way to recollect the mind easily in the time of prayer. You know what he means by that? Recollect your thoughts in prayer. I mean, you know, we won't do a show of hands, but I'll be the first one to do it. That, um, you you know, you bow your head. You're like, oh, Lord. It's like... I saw that donut in the kitchen, you know, like, or whatever, you know, like, um, what am I having for lunch? You know, oh, well, what was I doing? Oh, yeah, prayer. You know, I mean, you know, our thoughts just, they just fly away. He says to recollect our mind in time of prayer and, and preserve it, preserve it, have our mind stay there, dwell there in prayer is to not let it wander too far off in other times. In other words, if you live distracted, if you live outside the presence of God, you should not be shocked that when you sit down for a quick quiet time that you stay distracted so the question is how do we bring the presence of god into all other those aspects of life so we practice it we bring the presence of god into those other times of life in other words as an example playing the soundtrack of aladdin in the house is a good thing it's a practical example but when it's played over and over and over and then over again in the house, one's mind will default to singing a friend like me in the car and at work and find it harder to read your Bible and prepare a sermon. <laughs> Not that I'm speaking from experience. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, you're just, your mind kind of defaults to that. The more we fill our mind, on the other hand, with God's truth and his promises, the less distracted we'll be when we spend intentional time in his presence. The more our default at work and in mowing the grass will be joy in the things and the presence of God. Distraction. And one last thing, one more reason we feel a little desire sometimes for God's presence is difficulty or darkness. 
You know, if you've ever been caving, you've, um, you've probably been back in the cave and, it's, and, and then you turn off your lights. That moment where you turn off your lights and, and you kind of know there's somebody in your presence feet away. But back in a cave when there's a complete absence of light, it feels like, it feels like you're all alone. You feel like you're apart from, there's a distance. You don't feel like you're in the presence of anyone. And another reason we, we feel this uh, distance from God sometimes, maybe a season of not, um, of just, we're a season of, of darkness. David went through times of difficulty and darkness, and the same one who's writing here, the longing for God's presence. He also wrote in Psalm 69, God, why do you hide your face from me? For I am in trouble. In the time of difficulty, it felt like God was far away. Some of us, I know, have lost recently loved ones. Some of us are grieving a marital or relational issue, and some of us are battling depression, and just maybe overwhelmed with life. And it just seems dark. In those times, it can feel like God is just far off, like God has hidden his face. And so whether you're here and you say, I'm in the category of disbelief, Maybe a lot of us can identify with distraction or a season of difficulty. The question is, how can we increase that desire for the presence of God, as David was talking about here? The answer is, as we continue in the psalm, is we need to also sing the promises of God. We need to sing the promises of God. So let's look at the promise of God's presence. You know, one of the most encouraging things about this psalm is not what they are singing, but when they are singing it. Because there's a good chance that this was written and included in the Psalter in a time of difficulty and darkness. See, God's presence for God's people was attached to this promise of dwelling in the land and having this glorious temple in this glorious city of Jerusalem to meet with God there. But because of their distraction that led into utter um, disbelief, and covenant breaking, God allowed them to be exiled from the land. Uh, the, the city was overthrown in 597 BC and the temple was destroyed. The ark of God's presence was taken and never seen again. And then Nehemiah later led, uh, led the exiles uh, to return into um, the land and to Jerusalem. And there's a good chance they were living in this time of uncertainty when they were singing this song. It means that God's people would have been singing about the real presence of God even when there was no visible sign of it for them. It's a great example of what we are called to do. Live by faith in God's promises even when it's hard to do. Let me give you a few promises they were singing. A promise, number one, the promise of God's favor. You know, it's, it's sobering. As I, I want to talk about God's favor, but let me, let me just pause and say, it's sobering uh, to remember that to come into the presence of God, you know, biblically, it actually may or may not be a, a good thing for you. Contrary to the common assumption, it's not a given that it will go well with us in the presence of God. For example, this is why in verse 1, they spoke about David's hardships. Because in verse 6 through 8, they're probably referring to the hardship of bringing the ark back into the temple. And what was the hardship? 
Well, they're probably recalling when they're bringing it back up and they're all singing and dancing and everything's going well. And then all of a sudden the ark starts to tip over. And Uzzah, try, with good intentions, he puts his hands on the ark, which God, his dwelling in all his holiness, said, don't touch this. And all of a sudden he fell dead. The presence of God's holiness caused him to immediately die. They knew the stories. Right? In Mount Sinai, God's presence descends on a mountain. You go near and you die without mediation. Hebrews 10 says it is a terrifying thing for any to fall into the hands of a living God for those who are going on sinning without repentance and faith. So it is not a given that it is a good thing for some to come into the presence of God. But this is not what these people are singing here. For those who have put their trust in the Lord, they are assured not of, his, of God's wrath, but his favor. Listen as he recounted in verse 13 through 16. Read with me. The Lord has chosen Zion. He's desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever, for here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation. Her saints will shout for joy. They're saying basically this. Wherever God dwells, as one writer said, this is like the the zip code of your dreams. (laughs) Because God is going to dwell with his people there. And And where he is, with his people, they have their favor. God says to his people... He said, for, for my people, I have, he says, I have desired them. It's like a father that really does take his children's, his child's face and looks them in the eyes and turns it towards him and says, I desire you. <laughs> I delight in you. I will abundantly bless and satisfy you. That's what I picture God doing here to his people. And I don't know if there's much more in life than we desire for somebody to do to us. is to turn our face and say that, I desire you. I do think it would be somewhat awkward if somebody physically did that here in church. Um, But I think it's a longing that we all have for God to do to us. And most of the time, the Bible... I find it really interesting, this. Most of the time, the Bible speaks of God's presence. It it uses the literal Hebrew word of presence means face. Like um, Psalm 1611, in your presence... There is fullness of joy in your face. There's fullness of joy. Psalm 21.6. You make me glad with the joy of your presence. The joy of your face. In other words, joy comes from knowing the promise of God's face is turned towards us. That's what it's saying. Not away from us. Which is why this song includes a prayer in verse 10. Oh God, please don't turn your face away from us. Because then we won't know your favor. We won't have your favor. All true believers have such this promise of God's favor. Brother Lawrence, who I mentioned above, said this in his book. The king, full of mercy and goodness, very far from chastising me, embraces me with love. If you are a believer, picture yourself before God as, as I read this, and him turning your face towards himself. Embraces me with love, makes me eat at his table, serves me with his own hands, gives me the key of his treasure, He converses and delights himself with me incessantly. In a thousand and a thousand ways, he treats me in all respects as his favorite. It is thus I consider myself from time to time in his holy presence. 
Don't you want to be in the presence of God if that is how God thinks of you? The more we believe and grasp God's great desire for us like this, the more our desire will be to be in his presence. The more we'll be captivated or less captivated by other lesser glories here on earth. So that's that's God's favor. What about God's strength? The promise of God's strength. This is verse 17. God says... He'll make a horn to sprout for David. Horns were used for animal, um, you know, they were, they were on the animals and they were used to defend themselves and to attack. And in that time, the greater the horns, the bigger the horns, the more they were thought to be strong and mighty. And it's a promise here that God will be strong and powerful on his people's behalf. They refer to God here in verse 2 and 5 as the mighty one of Jacob, the strong one of Jacob. Do you remember a story of when Jacob uh, left his home? He's basically kicked out. He's running away from Esau, his brother. So he's in a time of discouragement, full of fear. And he knew the promises made to his grandfather Abraham. Oh, you're going to give us a land and make us into a great people. But it sure didn't feel like as he laid out in the wilderness that first night. But do you remember what happened that first night he lay down? God shows up to him in a dream. And he sees the stairway and angels are ascending and descending. And then God shows up at the top of the stairs and basically says, "Um, Look, I'm the same God as I was to your father and your grandfather. And the same promises that were true of them are true to you now. And he says this, Behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go. I will not leave you until I have done all that I have promised you. Jacob wakes up and says, Surely the Lord was in this place. And he placed this stone as a memorial and called it Bethel, which means the house of God, because he was convinced, not because he was in a temple, but because the presence of God was there, that this is the dwelling in the house of God. Because his presence, his promise was made clear. In other words, Jacob learned that the presence of the invisible God most often comes through the promises of God. The presence of God so often comes through the presence of God, not necessarily because everything was going as planned. One more promise in verse 17. The promise of God's light. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. A promise to bring light and clarity for God's people, especially in the midst of darkness. But again, they were probably singing these promises about the real presence of God in in a time of darkness where there was no visible sign of his presence. No visible king, no visible kingdom. They're simply singing by faith. You know, most of you have heard of John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church. Um, He was responsible for a lot of the growth of Christianity in England in the 1700s. And John grew up a Christian, in a Christian family, he lived his life to please the Lord. He thought he was a believer. But on a boat, coming back from America, actually on a mission trip, uh, a great storm hit. It, it was so bad that, that they really thought they were going to lose everything, that they were going to die. So the boat, picture water's coming in, um, and the boat's rocking back and forth, a mast actually um, f- f- collapsed about this time. Uh, when he, um, right in the midst of the storm... He hears singing. And he goes into this room where people are being 
move to and fro and water's coming in and there's these Moravian Christians from Germany who are singing songs to God in in kind of a breakout worship service. And John Wesley later records in his journal, he says, in the midst of this psalm, wherewith their service began, the sea broke over, split the mainsail in pieces, covered the ship and poured in between the decks as if the great deep had already swallowed us up. A terrible screaming began among all the English. Yet these Germans calmly sang on. I asked one of them afterwards, were you not afraid? He answered, I thank God, no. I asked, but, but were you not, not your women and children afraid? He responded mildly, no, our women and children are not afraid to die. And John realized then, it's one thing to know about God. But it's a completely another, another thing to have such rest in his promises that leads you to sing and to worship God in the midst of the darkness and the storm. In other words, it is when we most feel like a, fa- a failure that we need to remember the promise of God's favor. It is when we most feel that we are weak that we need to remember the mighty one of Jacob is strong on our behalf. It is in the midst of when we feel the greatest darkness that we need to remember. God is a lamp and a light on our behalf. The last and most important promise comes in verse 11. The Lord swore to David a sure oath. One of your sons of your body will be on the throne forever if if they will remain faithful and keep his covenant. In other words, all these other promises will be given through this Davidic king who will rule over you and through his kingdom will establish on earth. One of David's sons on his household um, did rule for, for around 400 years, which is really interesting because it's, um, I think, I heard this, that it's the longest lineage of one household to rule in the history of the whole world, 400 years. But as I mentioned, David's sons and God's people didn't keep the covenant. And it led to the destruction of God's city and his temple and the exile from the land, symbolically of his presence. And so it leads them to this question, and really us as well. How did they know for sure that these promises actually applied to them? How can you and I know for sure that these promises that we've talked about apply to us? So lastly, let me briefly look at the fulfillment of God's promise presence. The fulfillment of God's presence or his promised presence. You know, I had the the staff over um, Friday night at my house for a party. We're welcoming, all the staff were welcoming Stephen and um, Steve, our new executive pastor that's coming on next week. And we were wanting to get, get to know them. And we, we played this game where we divided into two teams. And we asked these trivia questions about Pepsi and Broadway. Does that seem random? Well, it wasn't. Um, Steve worked for Pepsi for like 20 or 30 years, a long time. And Stephen and his wife, Juliet, uh, worked uh, with, on Broadway and some Broadway plays for a long time. So we were, we were asking these, bro- these uh, trivia questions for each team. And 
Each answered their own questions, but I made one of the rules that if Steve or Stephen got the answer right, then your team or you got to count that answer as right also. In other words, for for their sake, you got the right answer. And see, God made a promise to David, and God's people seem to be acknowledging here that they're like, we have not been faithful. We've missed all the answers. We've broken the covenant. But if you look at verse 10, that's why, verse 10, that's why they look back and say, for the sake of your servant David, for the sake of David, would you give us what's promised on David's account, not our own? Verse 1, remember, O Lord, in David's favor. But of course, David was, the imperfect, was an imperfect king. He was not worthy to fulfill the requirements of the covenant of God's promises. So in verse 17, it says, God says, I'll raise up a sprout of David. The word was literally a branch. It's the same word used by Jeremiah and most of the other prophets when they said things like this. In Jeremiah 23, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. David needs a branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And so later, so later, many years later, this righteous branch, referred to in the New Testament as God's son Jesus, took on flesh. So that the presence of God would dwell among us. And so Jesus would live the righteous life and fulfill all the requirements of God's covenant for our sake. And so Jesus would suffer the exile from God's favor because of our unbelief, distraction, and idolatry. And so Jesus would rise again as the righteous ruler, the conquering king over all our sin and enemies. And so Jesus has promised us to come again and establish the new heavens and new earth. And for those who simply push, look away from themselves and put their faith in what Jesus has done for them. Hebrews 12 says, For those we have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Ephesians 2 says it's like we're already dwelling there with him in the heavenly places in his presence. And then Revelation 22 says, One day God will be on his throne. There will be no longer any darkness because the presence of his glory will light up and fill every space. God's presence will be there. No more darkness. In verse 4 of Revelation 22, it says, And we will be there in his light and we will see his face. And his name, God's name will be written on our foreheads. It is the mark of God's forever favor upon us. Jesus is worthy. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promised, restored presence in our lives. And God will give us all this for Jesus' sake. And so in light of this, I leave you with this exhortation. As we wait, potentially in a season of frequent darkness or difficulty, in the midst of a lot of distractions presented to us, Let us believe in our hearts with the psalmist. It is, as for me, it is good for me to be near God in his presence. Let us fully look to Jesus. Let us draw near to God so that he may draw near to us. Let's pray.
our gracious God in heaven, even though you are not, or we are not worthy, we know that Jesus is worthy to do all this on our behalf. And we pray if those, there are some here today that do not believe that this would be the day that they place their faith fully in Jesus and come into your presence and have the guarantee forevermore they will be with you. And for us who are distracted, Lord, we pray that you would enable us and empower us as the mighty one of Jacob to find more glory and beauty in the presence and promises of God than we do in other things. I pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.